0: Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we find in the biblical text snippets of our own experience and just how to deal with it. The book of Bamidbar, In the Wilderness, the journeys, adventures, and experiences of the wilderness. For several months now, we've been plumbing the depths of just what this book reveals of this wilderness journey and what it can teach us about our own times of wilderness. As we see reflected in Scripture from beginning to end, the times of wilderness are times of testing, times of trial that will push you to your edge. And the three primary tests that you will face in the wilderness are the three that were reflected in chapters 11 through 14. Tests of desire. That desire can take many forms. In chapter 11, we find that it was simply a desire for a variety of food that brought out the grumbling and complaining, accusations of failed promises and ill intent. The second test is a test of pride. In chapter 12, it was Miriam and Aaron who acted pridefully, allowing their pride to place themselves equal with Moses, allowing their pride to cause them to slander Moses and the choices that he had made in his private life. And the third test Is a test of power. In chapter 14, this test of power was in the form of a lack of faith in the power of Hashem to deliver on his promises. And then, once his favor was removed, it came out in the act of seizing power for themselves and going anyway. And after each of these three stories at the beginning of the wilderness, we read one story in which all of these issues raised their ugly head at the same time. In chapter 16, Desire, pride, and power converging together, culminating in a rebellion against Hashem, against His chosen leaders, and against His plan. These are the three main trials of the wilderness as described by the book of Numbers, the temptations and trials that a person will face while on their own wilderness journey. And we saw each of these reflected in the story of Yeshua in the wilderness as well, the three tests that He faced in His 40-day trial. But there's more to it than this. These three expressions are simply the base desires that the enemy uses when tempting us in the wilderness. These are the buttons that he pushes. But when these buttons are pushed, they cause a singular emotion to well up within us. You see, the wilderness experience is one that is designed to bring us to our end. To cause us to reach the point of lashing out with what has been secretly hidden inside. And that is accomplished through a thousand little frustrations. Just a bit here, a bit there. None of them too big on their own. None of them an issue in isolation. But when compiled together with frustration added upon frustration, added upon frustration, the result is an explosion that brings what is inside secret and safe and hidden out into the open for everyone to see. Most of all, It's there for us to see. You see, frustration is a seed. It is a seed of anger. And when anger is added to anger and is fed and hidden and given time to grow, soon it cannot be hidden anymore. Soon it comes out visibly, undeniably. And that's what we're going to encounter in the text today. The thousand frustrations of multiple years stacked upon each other, pouring out of everyone all at once. And the frustration and the anger when it comes out is directed at each other. So let's turn to Numbers 20 and read this chapter and then dive a little bit deeper into the many frustrations of Israel in the wilderness. And the children of Israel, all the congregation came into the wilderness of sin in the first month and the people stayed at Kadesh and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled against Moses and against Aaron. And the people contended with Moshe, and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brothers died before Hashem. Why have you brought the assembly of Hashem into this wilderness, that we and our livestock should die here? And why have you brought us up out of mizraim to bring us to this evil place, not a place of grain, or figs, or vines, or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink?' Then Moshe and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tent of appointment, and they fell on their faces, and the esteem of Hashem appeared to them. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Take the rod and assemble the congregation, you and your brother Aaron, and you shall speak to the rock before their eyes, and it shall give its water, and you shall bring water for them out of the rock, and give drink to the congregation and their livestock. And Moshe took the rod from before Hashem as he commanded him. And Moshe and Aaron assembled the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moshe lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and much water came out, and the congregation and their livestock drank. But Hashem spoke to Moshe and to Aaron, Because you did not believe me to set me apart in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you do not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. These were the waters of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with Hashem, and he was set apart among them. And Moshe sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. This is what your brother Yisrael said. You know all the hardship that has befallen us, that our fathers went down to Mitzrayim and dwelt in Mitzrayim a long time. And the Mitzrites did evil to us and to our fathers. And we cried out to Hashem, and he heard our voice and sent the messenger and brought us up out of Mitzrayim. And see, we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your border. Please let us pass over through your land. We shall not pass over through fields or vineyards, nor drink water from wells, and we shall go along the king's highway. We shall not turn aside right or left until we have passed over your border. But Edom said to him, You do not pass over through me, lest I come out against you with the sword. And the children of Israel said to him, We shall go by the highway, and if I or my livestock drink any of your water, then I shall pay for it. Let me only pass over on foot without a word. But he said, You do not pass over. And Edom came out against them with many men and with a strong hand. So when Edom refused to let Israel pass over through his border, Israel turned away from him. And the children of Israel, all the company, departed from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. And Hashem spoke to Moshe and to Aaron and Mount Hor near the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron is to be gathered to his people. For he is not to enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my mouth at the water of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eleazar his son, and bring them up to Mount Hor. And strip Aaron of his garments, and put them on Eleazar his son. For Aaron is to be gathered to his people, and die there. And Moshe did as Hashem commanded. And they went up to Mount Hor before the eyes of all the congregation. And Moshe stripped Aaron of his garments, and put them on Eleazar his son. And Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. And Moshe and Eleazar came down from the mountain. And when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron thirty days. Thirty-eight years have passed since we last encountered Israel in the wilderness. Now, the text doesn't say this outright. This passage of time, it's mostly tradition, but there are clues scattered throughout this chapter and through chapter 33 that quite some time has passed since we last saw the children of Israel in action i mean maybe it wasn't 38 years exactly but they did spend quite a bit of time in one place first off we find in the very first verse that israel came into the wilderness of sin and they stayed at kadesh now this location was the location that israel was in when they sent spies into the land of canaan back in chapter 13 numbers 13:26 13, And they went and they came to Moshe and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation, and they showed them the fruit of the land. And in verse 1, it says that Israel dwelt in Kadesh. This word dwelt or stayed in the Hebrew is the word yeshav, and it is one that is rare in the book of Numbers. But it is a word that means more than simply to dwell. It's a word that means to settle or to remain. And if we track it through the book of Numbers, we find it applied to the people that dwell in Canaan. We find it applied to what Israel will do when they reach Canaan. We find it applied to what the residents of a city of refuge must do until the death of the high priest. And it is applied to what the people did on the east side of the Jordan at Shittim. And that's it. It's a word that describes settling down in one place for a time and becoming comfortable, more or less. Added to this, when the people come to Moses, they complain, in verse 3, they complain, if only we had died when our brothers died before Hashem. Now, this could be referring to several things, but it's commonly thought to refer to those who died during the wait, that previous generation. If only we had died peacefully, like the previous generation, rather than have to face this challenge and potentially die of thirst. The third data point is a bit, tenuous as well. In verse sixteen, Kadesh is described as a city on the edge of the border of Edom. But wait, Israel was in the wilderness. Why were they in a city in Kadesh? Well it's not that Israel planted a city in this place because they were there for so long. But again this is not necessarily true as we read of Kadesh three times in the book of Genesis. So perhaps it was already an established city. And then there's Deuteronomy 1, verse 46. So you dealt in Kadesh many days according to the days that you dwelt. And then finally, in Numbers chapter 33, we read that Aaron died in the first day of the fifth month of the fortieth year. All of these, and perhaps a desire for each of the segments of this chapter to have occurred near the end of the wilderness journey, they all conspire together to lead us to the conclusion that If it wasn't 38 years, it was at least a significant amount of time that took up the majority of the 40 years in the wilderness. Regardless of exactly how long it took, it was at Kadesh that Miriam died, and there was no water. Now, in our modern Western view, it is thought that these are perhaps two isolated events. Miriam died, there was no water. Things were rough, everything happening all at once but according to tradition, the water stopped because Miriam died. One indication that we get from the text that this is the case is that it does not state that the people mourned for Miriam. Now, this might have something to do with the society and the role of women in the ancient Near East, but it might also have to do with the result of her death bringing a lack of water. There was not enough time for the people to mourn for her because this emergency preempted the period of mourning. The tradition is that the rock that first brought forth water and Moses struck it back in Exodus 17, it continued to follow Israel through the wilderness from place to place. And Miriam would then sing to the rock when they got to the new place or every morning or when it ceased to flow. The traditions, they're not really clear on this. And when she sang to the rock, it would begin to flow again. And this rock, well, it became known as the well of Miriam. And so, when Miriam died, the water dried up, which precipitated this water crisis in the place that they had been at for 38 years, with no water issues up to this point. Now, this all sounds rather fanciful, right? A rock that followed Israel through the desert? A rock that produces water when a person sung to it? Well, if this is just a legend, it's a legend that Paul leverages to teach a lesson in 1 Corinthians 10 to 1 through 4. It says, For I do not wish you to be ignorant, brothers, that all our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed, and that rock was Messiah. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed, and the rock was Messiah. Simply a fanciful story. Or is it? After all, they ate food that covered the ground like frost for these 38 years. That sounds pretty fanciful as well. Is it too difficult to believe, in light of the miraculous food from heaven, that the rock that produced water followed them through the wilderness? And that the rock produced water when sung to? After all, What is it that Moses is commanded to do to the rock to get it to flow in this chapter? Simply speak to the rock. But the sudden lack of water, it causes something in the people. Not frustration, but fear. Many years have passed since the previous trial. Years that may have begun to turn into a blur. Day after day, year after year, the same old routine. Things settled down and a new normal had taken hold. And then out of nowhere, something happens, and suddenly the old issues, those old fears, the old arguments are suddenly just under the skin once again. The fear that was never really dealt with, but was simply shoved down. That fear boiling to the surface and spewing out everywhere. And the death of Miriam seems to kick off a chain reaction of responses in the people. And in these responses, we find the three outlets of the frustration in the wilderness represented. Miriam dies, and the people respond with desire. Once again, the same old complaints raise their heads. You have brought us out here to die. This place is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. The bounty that has been promised has not been realized. Added to this, now there's no water out here. And the grumbling against Moses arises once again. And notice that in this grumbling, the people identify with those who had already been judged. If only we had died when our brothers died for their sins. We wish that we had been judged as worthy of death rather than to have to go through this difficulty and this test. And Aaron and Moses, they treat actions like in the past. They go and they throw themselves on the ground before Hashem. And Hashem gives them instructions on how to handle the issue. Take your rod and speak to the rock. It will give its water. There's no need for all this weeping and gnashing of teeth that's going on. And so Moses and Aaron do what was asked of them. Sort of. And this is where the frustration comes into play. You see, Moses had been experiencing a lot of frustration himself, I believe. From the very beginning, he has been the one that has been blamed every time that something goes wrong. He's been the brunt of the attacks of the people. He's been the one that's had to put up with their complaints and their issues and their struggles with each other for years. He's had to sit in judgment over them and address each problem as they come along, no matter how petty. He's had to stand in the gap for this thankless people and put himself out there. He's had to give up so much of his own desires and this is the thanks that he gets. 39 years of dealing with this thankless people, and then this. And the frustrations of yesterday boil to the surface. When will these people learn? It wasn't just the people that were experiencing a sudden recurrence of the fears of the past. Moses was forced to deal with the same frustration that he'd been shoved down for so long. He thought they were done with this, the constant bickering and blaming. All of that was addressed and dealt with years ago, or perhaps only two chapters ago. That old generation, though, it was gone now. But now, here it is again. It was not gone. It was in hiding. And so Moses' own frustration comes boiling out in a moment, and rather than simply speaking to the rock as he had been asked, the anger... And bursts forth in his words. Here now, you rebels, must we do everything for you? Must we bring the water out of the rock for you too, on top of everything else? And his anger bursts forth in violent action. He smacks the rock with his staff. As I read this, I get the impression that he might have expected the water to come out on the first strike, and when it didn't, Rather than slowing down and re-evaluating, he doubled down on his angry actions and he smacked the rock again. And in this we see a glimpse of pride. If it weren't for us, meaning Moses and Aaron, you people, you'd be so doomed. Don't you remember? We were your chosen leaders. You need us. But you, you are rebellious. The most humble man in the world, Numbers 12 says about Moses, and yet 40 years of the people's reliance upon him, being in a position of authority given by God himself, has led Moses to a place of pride, not as his usual way of operating, but in a moment of weakness. And in this we see that the adage is true, power indeed corrupts. Even a humble man like Moses was corrupted to a small degree by the power that he was given over the people. He began to take pride in his own importance. Without me, without us, God would be unable to work with these people without us. And in this moment, this moment of self-exaltation before the people, Moses' own words condemn him. Sure, some pride leaks out, but it's not just that. that accusation of rebellion. Never before had Moses called the people rebels, even when they had been legitimately rebellious. And now as he utters this accusation for the first time, he follows it up with his own act of rebellion. And it all comes crashing down. The water comes forth out of the rock, but the promised land. While well, the promised land is now off limits to both Moses and Aaron. Hashem had desired to be set apart before the people, and it was the job of Moses and Aaron to do this for the people. It was their job to ensure that Israel knew that God was with them and that it was him that was taking care of them. And in this moment of frustration, in this moment of weakness, in this bursting forth of anger directed at the people, They take that honor for themselves. They don't give the honor to Hashem. It is often thought that Moses was rejected from the land due to his striking the rock rather than speaking the rock. He didn't obey the letter of the law. And this is true to a degree, but once again, it is the expression of this failure to live up to the letter that reveals something deeper going on in Moses. Striking the rock was a physical outpouring of a lot of pent-up emotions, but the issue at stake was not the striking, it was when they claimed that it was their power that was accomplishing the miracle. You see, if it's true that Miriam had brought the water from the rock on previous occasions and it was her death that had caused the rock to cease, then we have an indication that the people had possibly built up a mythology around Miriam, a story of the power that she had over water and rocks. And Hashem wished to disabuse the people of this notion. Any one of you could ask the rock to bring forth water, because it was not Miriam that was special. It was Hashem. And it's not Aaron and Moses that are special either. They have no power of themselves. There is nothing inherently special about his staff. It is Hashem answering the call of his people that brings water from rocks. And so when Moses claims the power for himself, he is ascribing this power to himself. And the lesson that was present, that anyone who has the faith can ask the rock to give water, and it will give because Hashem provides for the needs of his children, is lost. Hashem was not sanctified through Moses' actions. Moses and Aaron were sanctified in the eyes of the people. And I believe that it is this that precipitates the judgment against Moses and Aaron their disobedient action to the letter, betraying a spark of pride, just a spark that nestled at the heart of Moses. And in this, we find that simply being the best at something does not make one perfect. I mean, after all, Solomon was the wisest man alive. And despite his wisdom, he made terrible mistakes contrary to wisdom. Samson was the strongest man alive. And despite his strength, He made terrible mistakes. So too with Moses, the humblest man alive, and yet he made a mistake contrary to humility. These men were heroes, and yet they were still men. And this just demonstrates that we cannot put our hope in men. We must only put our hope in Hashem because men will let you down. Even chosen and anointed men will let you down. I will let you down. Your president will let you down. Everyone will let you down. There's only one man that we can put our hope in, and his name is Yeshua. Now, this action by Hashem has caused many a person to shake their head in disbelief and echo the sentiment of the man of Beth Shemesh when they captured the ark and looked into it. For Samuel 6.20, And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Hashem Elohim, and to whom shall he go from us? And their sentiment is true. Who is able to stand before Hashem? But Moses was chosen. He succeeded all the time and never failed. He only ever failed this one time after he was chosen. And yet for this one transgression, he is forbidden from reaching the promised land. That seems harsh. And yet, Ezekiel thirty-three, seventeen through 18 says, And the children of your people have said, The way of Hashem is not fair, but it is their way which is not fair. When the righteous one turns from his righteousness and does unrighteousness, he shall die because of it. A lifetime of righteousness is offset by a single act of unrighteousness. And with this knowledge, we ask once again, who can stand before Hashem? Who can survive if he turns his judgment toward us? And Psalm chapter 30, verse 3 through 4 says, O Yah, if you would watch crookedness, O Hashem, who would stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you might be feared. Only those whose sins have been forgiven can hope to stand in judgment. And this lesson, while harsh, is one that reminds us that we must have the blood of Yeshua to have a hope of surviving judgment when the time comes. If even Moses did not pass judgment, then we have no hope without Messiah. Continuing on, it is time for Israel to move once again. Decades of sitting in the same place, and the time has come. And the place where they need to go is relatively near. It's only around a 100 miles away as the crow flies. All they have to do is pass the nation of Edom, and they're there. And so messengers are sent to the king of Edom to request passage through his land, and the king refuses. Even with an offer to pay for passage, the king refuses. If Israel even approaches the border, the king promises that he will come out and fight them to prevent them from passing through. And so there are two options, because Israel needs to get to the other side of Edom. They can go around, a trip that will force them to walk away from the land for a time, a trip that will add 300 miles to their travels, a trip that no one in Israel wants, or they can fight. But this is the last thing that Israel or God wants at this time, not a fight, not a fight against Edom. Edom is related to Israel. They are brothers, Jacob and Esau. Deuteronomy twenty-three seven says, "Do not loathe an Edomite, for he is your brother, and do not loathe an Egyptian, because you were a stranger in his land." The fact is that fighting between these two nations will come in time, but that time is not now. For now, the Canaanites and the other nations that surround them are the target. Edom is not on the list, and so it is that Israel must move on, not towards the land, but away, in the opposite direction. Back the way that they had come so many decades before. Back to the sea. The final leg of the journey did not begin by heading directly towards the land. In fact, they were on the border of Canaan, where they were at Kadesh. But they were not where they needed to be. They needed to be in the plains of Moab, on the east side of the Jordan, near Shittim. Again, Another frustration. No longer is there a quick end to the journey. Instead, there is now an extra several hundred miles of travel. Now they have to turn around and go back to nearly where they began from. And then on the journey, Hashem comes to Moses as they're beginning to walk away. It's time for Aaron to die. It's time for his sons to pick up their mantle and take their place as the spiritual leaders of Israel. Eleazar is to take the place of high priest. And where is this to happen? Well, on Mount Hor, of course. Once again, we see a fun little word pun occurring here. For the word for mountain in Hebrew is har. And the name of this particular mountain is hor. It's simply a stylized name of the word mountain. So this place is Mount Mountain. And who is it that's dying here? Well, Aaron, we say in the English. But in Hebrew, his name is Aharon. And what is the meaning of this name? Well, there are several options, but the one that I find most likely is exalted mountain or mountain of strength. And my reasoning for this is his death and where it occurs. The exalted mountain dies on Mount Mountain. It brings a certain closure to the story of the first high priest of Israel. Besides, the uh, the word pun, it works much better if his name means mountain. But the place where Aaron passes is a place of renown. We talked about this a long time ago, but what's so significant about the top of a mountain? In the ancient Near East mind, it is the place where God and man meet. It is the place of temples and visions and significant events. And it is here that the priesthood is changed forever. From Aaron to Eliezer. And it is here that this chapter ends with Israel mourning for 30 days for the passing of Aaron. So there are a few things that I'd like to highlight from this chapter before we close. First off, there's been a lot of death here in the middle of the book of Numbers. Chapter 16 was the description of the death of all of the presumptive leaders in Israel, those who wanted the power for themselves and rebelled against the chosen leadership to get said power. Then, last chapter, the waters of uncleanness, which cleanses a person from the association of death. And then this chapter, when the legitimate leaders of Israel all either die or are told of their impending deaths. The presumptive leaders a few chapters ago, and the legitimate leaders this chapter, all dead or on their last legs. And in the center, 38 years of death that is not recounted, and a solution necessary to remove the death from those who are still living. And in this we find the wages of sin and rebellion staring us squarely in the face. Israel steeped in their sins and all of them dying because of their sins in the wilderness. Chapter 16 and chapter 20, they act as commentaries on each other. No matter what kind of leadership you have, it is only human. And because it is human, it will fail. Instead, our hope must be in Hashem and not in human leaders. Psalm 146, 3-5 says, Do not put your trust in princes in son of man in whom there is no salvation. His spirit goes out and he returns to his earth, In that day his plans perish. Blessed is he who is the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in Hashem his God. Men will fail, either through faithlessness or through death, likely both. So our hope must be in Hashem and not in some personality. Secondly, chapters 16 and 20, they serve as commentary in another way. In both, we see a culmination of each of the three temptations of the wilderness. In chapter 16, we looked at each of these as they were present in the rebellion of Korah. The desire reflected in the comments of those who would not face Moses prior to the showdown. Their desire for more, driving them to call Egypt the land of milk and honey. Pride in the statements of Korah as he dressed down Moses by claiming, Aren't we all holy? You take too much on yourself. And power represented in the entire exercise. And Korah and his cronies attempt to seize the power from Moses and Aaron. In chapter 20, we see all three once again. The desire reflected in the complaints of the people as they obliquely remind everyone that they are still eating manna. And now, now they're without water as well. The pride coming out in Moses' comments to the people, Shall we bring the water out of the rock for you? And power, in the change of power, as two of those who had power in Israel passed away, and their power failed them and their leader is told of his own impending death. Each of these serving as cogent reminders of the trials of the wilderness and their ability to seep into every facet of a community or society. One serving as the closing of the initial leg of the journeys of Israel in the wilderness as they come to rest at Kadesh. The other serving as the opening of the final leg of the journeys of Israel in the wilderness as they head to Shittim and conquest. And finally, I want to address this idea of frustration. Frustration is something that we all deal with from time to time. It's that annoyance that you get when things don't just go right or they don't go your way. And this is the heart of the wilderness experience alongside the fear, faithlessness, desire, and all of the others. Things are not going to go your way in the wilderness You will go without the things that you desire. You will be shown that you are not all that you thought you were. You will see others using power in ways that are not your ways. And you will face the primary temptation in the wilderness. The temptation to seize control and to begin to do the things your way. You see, desire, pride, and power, these are all sides to the same three-sided coin. But it is the frustrations that will bring what is in your heart to the surface. And at first it will be manageable frustrations, little things, even big things, but in isolation, manageable. But then another frustration will arise from another area, then another, then another, each manageable on its own. But as each progressive frustration builds, so does the pressure. Keeping them all in is no longer possible. The wilderness will cause the anger and the fear to mount, and when it does, what is in you will boil up to the surface and threaten to come out. And in that moment it is oh so very easy to sin, to act unjustly, to slander, and to speak against, even to take action against the person or the thing that is perceived as the cause of your issues. And this is what the wilderness is designed to do. It is designed to reveal these failures inside of us so that we can deal with them, so that we can drag these issues out back and put them down, and we can begin to rip apart our hearts and let Hashem forge them anew. Because we will be unable to hide our failures from ourselves in that moment. We either face these issues and deal with them, or we leave the wilderness completely and succumb to them. We return to Egypt and all that it has to offer. And once you've dealt with your issues, you're going to have a time of rest, a time of respite to recoup and to rebuild. And then one day out of the blue, you'll get hit again. And in that moment, you'll find that perhaps you had not had as much success in dealing with your past issues as you thought you did. And you will have to once again rip apart your heart, expose it to the light, and allow Hashem to lead you in rebuilding it once again. And then it will happen again, each successive occasion like the hammer blow of a blacksmith forging something of great value, something strong and able to withstand the pressure. Because if there is one thing that will never go away in this life, it is pressure and frustrations. And the answer to surviving this process is something that none of us want to face. Patience. I can't tell you the number of times that I've had people tell me that they won't ask God for patience because they know what will happen if they do. They will be tested repeatedly. James 1, 2-4, though, says, My brothers, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the proving of your faith works patience, and let patience have a perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But it is the trial, the pressure, the repeated strikes with the hammer that forge a strength into you, Don't try to escape the pressures, the frustrations of the wilderness. Don't try to escape back to Egypt where things are supposedly easy. Instead, recognize that you have all that you need because you have Hashem. And that these pressures, they're only temporary. Even though they feel eternal when you're in the midst of them. So don't avoid asking for patience. Seek it out. It is a fruit of the Spirit, and it is one that our microwave world desperately needs. But do so with the understanding that when you do, you will face trials. You will be forced to do without. Everything will seem to go wrong, and you will be forced to rely on Hashem, and you will be forced to deal with some deep-seated issues in your heart. But in the end is the promised land. A land of abundance, a place of plenty. Because after you've been brought through the wilderness, whatever you have is abundance. Nothing is taken for granted. And yet, you can live without it. It's through the wilderness that you can reach the place of Paul when he spoke these words in Philippians 4:11 through 13 He says, Not that I am speaking concerning need, for I have learned to be content in whatever state I am. I know what it is to be humbled and I know what it is to have in an excess, and in every situation I have learned both to be filled and to be hungry, both to have in an excess and to be in need, I have strength to do all through the Messiah who empowers me. And that is the crux. Learning patience produces contentment. And it's only through learning patience that we can hope to contend when the wilderness journey has its way. It's only through continual practice with patience that we can hope to withstand the pressures and the fears when they arise. If you don't practice with patience now, you will not have built the muscle necessary to withstand when it really matters, when the true test comes. So please don't avoid seeking patience from Hashem. Seek it now while it may be found. Because patience is one of the most important tools that you have at your disposal as you daresh Kai. as you seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band check them out on iTunes or exodusroadband.com we'll see you again next time as we dare Chai, as we seek life shalom